Good morning, good afternoon. How you doing out there today in the world? This is David Robert for the Marketplace of Ideas podcast. I hope you're having a wonderful and great day. Today is January. I'm sorry, January. Wow. Holy smokes. Today is June, June the 10th, 2023. We are heading fastly into summer. It is now the I mean, we're almost, my gosh, we're almost in the middle of June. That's insane to think of, but hopefully people are doing well out there. just want to give a quick shout out to anybody who is going through um, the, the fire season right now. If you are, you know, trying to protect yourself, keep yourself safe. I hope that you are watching out for each other and that we're doing what we can to be responsible, not to do anything to set off forest fires and, you know, keeping people accountable with their fire pits and stuff. We're in a fire ban right now, um, where I'm at. And I remember looking at my window and just a little while ago, um, I saw this couple across the street that had like, you know, a fire going and I was almost ready to, you know, jump over and call the, call the cops or what have you, but decided better, it was better not to do that type of thing. But regardless, before we get started, just want to let you know you can find the Marketplace of Ideas podcast wherever you get your podcast from Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes. We are there rocking and rolling, having a good time, living the dream. So today's topic is going to be an interesting one. We're going to be chatting about something that's been in the news for quite a bit of quite a bit of time. Now, I, little backstory, I have been a fan of fantasy, science fiction, comic books, flights of fancy, since I could read. Since the, since I was five, six, seven, I fell in love with the world of Marvel and DC and Looney Tunes and animation and, you know, The Hobbit and Disney and... And Warner Brothers, just all of these companies and corporations and conglomerates that put together these, these amazing stories and heroes and characters and things that we could look to and want to be like. And unfortunately for me growing up, I never wanted to be like my dad or my mother. It was never an insult or a, you know, a dig at their character because I, I love them. I loved them and respected them, but I never wanted to be them. And I know that that always was a little bit of a, a bit of a shot towards their pride a little bit because here they were working so hard and providing and everything else. And their kid and their, their two sons just wanted to be like Spider-Man or like the Incredible Hulk or looked up to, you know, Dr. Bruce Banner and, you know, Thundercats and all this other craziness that wasn't even in the realm of possibility. But what these stories did is they inspired, they ignited, they put this idea in, inside of your head of the universe and what what the potential that's out there could be. You know, the the fact that a, <clears throat> excuse me that a regular <clears throat> excuse me, the basement's a little bit dusty down here. That a an individual hit with spider powers could somehow, by the tutelage of his Uncle Ben, right before he died, you know, tell him that great power comes great responsibility. Somebody like Logan Holt, also known as the Wolverine, could 
be given a curse or a gift to be a mutant with regenerative powers and razor-sharp claws and animal-keen strength and instincts and take on, <coughs> excuse me, behemoths like the Hulk and the Wendigo and or look into the DC Marvel universe, sorry, the DC universe where you have characters like Superman and Martian Manhunter and Green Lantern Robin and Batman and Mr. Freeze and the Penguin and Mr. Mizzleplex and Brainiac and Darkseid and I could go on and on and on and we've got characters from Narnia to The Hobbit to it's just it was just a glut of this amazing content in the 80s and the 90s and and stuff that came even before that in the 50s and the 60s I mean Captain America goes all the way back to the to the Second World War, for crying out loud. Same with, with Superman. These, these characters have been with us for almost close to 100 years. And then you go back even further to the Iliad and to the stories from the Bible and Homer and, you know, Greek and Roman mythology with the Greek gods like Zeus and, you know, and these and, and then you go to, you know, the, the, the fairy tales, you know, of um, Peter Pan and, and you know, and, and Captain Hook and this plethora of stories and fantasy from children to young adult to older adults that just fill our lives with such joy and happiness and wonder, you know, just this, this feeling of anything's possible and that the dull mundane life that you lead could turn into something extravagant. If only you get bitten by that spider or get exposed to gamma radiation or be born a mutant, it was you know, have these powers to, to defy the laws of physics and, and, you know, take your future into your own hand and like He-Man, you know, lift up your sword and say, you know, I have the power, you know, and, 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 you know, feel like you were empowered. And so most of these genres, if you would, growing up, particularly myself being a, you know, a black, black kid in the eighties, I didn't really see myself in these stories. Now, that didn't mean that I didn't um, connect with the storyline and the characters, and I didn't feel like I was there when Frodo was climbing up, you know, Mount Doom, trying to get rid of the ring. It didn't mean that I didn't feel something when uh, Clark Kent, i.e., played by you know Stephen Reeves, or Christopher Reeves, I'm sorry, in the uh, Superman movies in the late 70s and into the 80s where he stepped into the fortress of solitude with Lois Lane and you know trapped Zod in the phantom zone uh stuff like that so I definitely felt that that commonality that feeling that we all have when we're fighting against the dying of the light and we're trying to battle against our our vices to our virtues but it didn't it didn't but it would have helped to have seen more of my you know people that looked like me in these films and movies and animation and cartoons and seeing as how the majority of these, of these characters and these um, protagonists and antagonists and storylines were written by people that, you know, necessarily didn't always look like me. What would come out would be people that looked like them. And so on my wall in, in my studio here in the basement, I have this beautiful array of DC characters drawn in the 80s style of what would come out, of the comic books in the 80s and the 1980s with DC. And I could look on here and I could see aliens. I see Darkseid with his gray skin. I see the Joker with his chalk white sort of, you know, um, skin there. I see Firestar. I see 
Texas Tornado. I, I, and, and literally, the only one character that looks like me staring back at me is Cyborg. And uh, he was created out of, you know, he's an android, basically. And his father saved him after an accident and saved his life. And he is so much a relatable character now that technology is so much a part of our lives. But I'm looking at, at, at this poster and I only see one person kind of looking back that kind of looks at, looks like me a little bit. And I remember once I was driving, giving my brother a lift in my car and I dropped him off and we were just chatting about superheroes as we do. And he's a big fan of the whole universe of, of uh, Marvel and DC and image and dark horse. And we were saying if we could even begin to list like black and Aboriginal and first nations and Asian and East Indian characters in the pantheon of heroes that we love. And I think we were able to get up to maybe 10, 11 or so, not counting aliens and other extraterrestrials and things of that nature. And so I say all of that to say that it's not necessary to have nothing but Asian and black characters in your, in your stories, but it doesn't hurt to be able to see yourself. And the reason I bring all this up is because the topic we're going to be chatting about today is what happens when in society, in particular in our storytelling, be it through superheroes and animation, or it be through historical fiction, as I like to call it, where we see artists and writers and creators take, if you would, liberties to interject a what-if scenario. And so the first thing I want to talk about is the, the show Bridgerton. Um, if you've followed it on Netflix, it's this wonderful show about basically a time period where people were equal to, um, to, to, to the Britons, to the British folks and slavery didn't occur. So if I can look this up real quick, basically the premise of the show it's really cool. And, oh, sorry, one second here. Yeah, here it is. So, um, da, 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 da. so the show Bridgerton talks, um, basically is, uh, let me just see here. There we go. So during the Regency era in England, eight close-knit siblings of a powerful Bridgerton family attempt to find love. So this is the premise and the synopsis of the show. In the first episode dated December 25th, 2020. It was adapted from the book uh, Bridgerton. And its genre is Regency romance, historical romance, and alternate history. And it's that alternate history aspect of it that has come under fire and scrutiny due to a lot of people feeling that they've played too fast and loose with the rules and think that what they're doing is somewhat trying to whitewash history. And so I go on to explain here that in the premise of the show, what tends to ha what, what happened basically is this thing called the great experiment. And so the great experiment is, um, by the accounts of the showrunners, they say that the interracial relationship between, um, the king and his new bride was that it was the palace's attempt to desegregate the tons and grant more land and status to people of color. 
And so basically what happened is Queen Charlotte falls in love with the king. But at the time, there was still this cast of, you know, class systems that Britain is famously known for. Spread it to England and uh, spread it to India and everywhere else. But what happened was, is this king fell in love with this, this woman of color. And so it would seem almost problematic and almost very backwards to have the king fall in love with this black woman, yet other black people are slaves. It's kind of like the whole King Esther thing in the Bible where she's going to marry the king, but then Mordecai, um, not Mordecai, but um, I forget the other the guy, but he wants to kill Queen Esther uh, and her people anyways. And so she's put in a place, as the Bible says, uh, for such a time as this, where she can kind of help her people out, you know, make her case to the king so that her people won't be slaughtered and, and murdered and, you know, pillaged and all that kind of stuff. And so Queen Charlotte marrying the king basically is a way out for black people in this time period to not be beast of burden and not to be slaves, but to be equals. And obviously this is fantasy. This actually didn't happen. It is a part of this, you know, this, this storyline that are bringing black people into the fold to make them, well, e equal, equal to their white counterparts. And this is, this is the rub. This is where so many people lose their crap, lose their shit, and start saying that the writers of this show are trying to not only whitewash history, but they're trying to make it more palatable for today's audiences. Now, the truth be told is that even with my family's background, we come from a, um, the byproduct of, of chattel slavery, where um, you know people were sold and auctioned off to work and to create the wealth of various nations. Uh, my family's from the Caribbean. Trinidad and Grenada, and because of that, that's where, you know, they, they landed after they were either sold or bartered with um, my ancestors from Africa and various other parts of the world. And this, this was things that were, were done since the time of the Bible, since the time before Christ and after, where it was commonplace to, once you ransacked a kingdom, you would you know, carry off all the men to be slaves and you would impregnate all the women. That's pulling it politely. It would just, it's, it was rape and pillage. And the children would be, you know, indoctrinated into your form of thinking, worship your gods, and it would go so on and so forth. It was pretty nasty, pretty horrible ordeal. And what transpired was once people started to, you know, the, the Magna Carta was, was kind of like the first kind of like, um, crack in that wall of authoritarianism as well as the landed gentry and rather than people believing that they should rule because of their last name and because they were landowners we saw the rise of the merchant class when people started coming to the new land here in canada and north america realizing that hey it's, it's not just because somebody you know is has blue blood in their veins that, you know, the, the average man on the street with enough gumption and enough, you know, get up and go could take, could rise out of poverty and rise out of the, rise out of the dredges of society. But what Bridgerton tries to show us is, hey, what would have happened had, you know, chattel slavery not reached, not lasted as long as it did in the British Empire. And that wasn't transported over here to North America and into the Americas. What would have happened if Britain 
one of the most powerful, if not the powerful, at the time uh, that they have this put in here for this filming of Bridgerton, had said, no, we're not going to partake in the brutality of slavery. We're going to treat people as equals. And so that's where we can see characters who are black, who are brown, who are of uh, East Indian descent, and so on and so forth, stand on, on the same footing with people on the show. And the level of hatred that was levied with some writers and people saying that they were trying to brainwash and whitewash and remove the stain of history was quite, quite interesting. So what we're going to do is just take a little, take a little um, look at that claim and realize that first and foremost, in my opinion, Bridgerton is not trying to take away the sting of history. They're not trying to um, erase what happened. They're not trying to deny the tens of thousands of people, millions of people that were stolen from their land, from their culture, from their language, from their heritage, and transported over, over oceans, over land, over great distances, and some didn't even make the trip. The transatlantic slave trade claimed hundreds of thousands of people just in the abhorrent conditions alone from what they were shackled into. The, the smell of human waste, the, the disease that ran rampant. If you were, if, and I, I, I use these words loosely, if you were lucky enough to, to make the voyage, well, you just went from, from the frying pan into the fire because then you were property. You, you didn't have any rights. You didn't have the autonomy over your own mind, body. Your name was stricken from you. Your native tongue was taken from you. And not being able to, to have the freedom to just be a human being, to be a person, to be seen as an individual with a soul and the rights to happiness and freedom. Those were denied to you. And so Bridgerton isn't doing that. The show isn't telling people, hey, racism doesn't exist and we're making this alternative universe and this, you know, everybody's happy and everyone's having sex with everybody. It, that's not the case. And in the show, we see definite instances of that and along with the new, um, uh, the new, it's not season, season two, but uh, the extended sort of, I guess you could say, I don't want to say the, um, it's almost an extension, but... My wife and I, we watched the, um, the Charlotte, the, um, oh my gosh, I guess this could be like the extension of the Bridgerton sort of, um, universe where they examine a little bit more closely the life of Charlotte, the queen. We go back into, into, into time and see how she met the king because on the show they do show the queen, but the king has already, um, suffered from his mental illness. He's been away from court for a very long period of time. No one really sees him except her. And we don't even really see her children. We don't really delve into her life because in the, in the show they're talking about the Bridgertons. They're talking about, um, the eldest daughter for the first, uh, season. Then the second one, I think it's the eldest son and his, you know, falling in love and all that kind of stuff. So this kind of examines the queen. And it's kind of cool because <clears throat> we get to see what kind of started this great experiment. But for people to say that it's revisionist history, by no means does the show 
should you even look at it as a historical reference? It is fantasy. It is something that is put out there so people can watch hot people have sex, basically. It's, it's not anything that I, I would hope that nobody would use this as, um, as, uh, as a form of, of, as a history lesson, right? So um, I found this article here, and I wanted to real, uh, just touch on it very quickly. Okay. Where is it? So this was written on May the 5th. Uh, 2023, so just last month, and The Real History of Queen Charlotte and the Problem with Netflix's Bridgerton spinoff. So Shonda Rhimes' new show imagines an interracial romance that remakes Regency England. That sure didn't happen. The first time I heard someone call Charlotte Queen consort to King George III the first black queen of England, I thought they were, ta- I thought they were talking the piss. But even though the evidence of Charlotte's black heritage is weak, many do genuinely believe it, and now millions more will believe it too. The premiere of Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story, a Shondaland production based on the romance novels of Julian Quinn, tries to cement the public image of the monarchy as an undeniably black woman. The prequel series gives Queen Charlotte, uh, whose name is India, I'm not even going to try to pronounce her last name, in youth, and Golda... Ross Hulville, I hope I said that right, in her later years, um, these are the actresses that play the young and the older Queen Charlotte, the spotlight. Here she is a black teenager whose interracial marriage to the mentally ill King George um, led to an event called The Great Experiment. In Queen Charlotte and the original Bridgerton series, The Great Experiment refers to Britain's clearly fictional decision to fully integrate black people and other people of color into their society including the noble class. In Queen Charlotte, the stakes of the Great Experiment are most vocally echoed by Lady Danbury, um, who is revealed to be African royalty with wealth that exceeds that of most of the British nobles, but has to fight to be accepted among British nobility. Most people know this didn't happen. It's common sense that black people were not accepted into all levels of British society in the 18th and 19th centuries. And if Meghan Markle's experience as part of the royal families are any indication, they're not accepted among British nobility now. Although people widely understand this element of the story is fantastical, many do consider the real Queen Charlotte to be black. And Netflix and Shondaland are fanning that flame. Netflix even threw a, royal, a royalty themed event with historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs, to celebrate the premiere. The messages that Queen Charlotte sends about the politics of wealth, interracial relationships, representational politics, and empire are dangerous. Let me see. At the core of its danger is the choice to double down on the likely false idea that Queen Charlotte was black. Let me see. We're also seeing that sort of kickback against the Netflix series of Cleopatra, in which um, Will Smith's wife is one of the directors. And recently, an Egyptian historian has actually wanted to put out a like a lawsuit against Netflix, stating that by giving you know um, uh, Cleopatra the identity of being a African woman. That somehow it's um, it's hurting the Egyptian 
um, legacy and history of, of what's going on there. But that'll be on another podcast there. But um, basically, uh, let me see. Although Charlotte and George, so I'll c- continue the article here. So basically, although Charlotte and George did not have an interracial relationship that changed the course of history, there was a public debate about Charlotte's appearance. Some accounts and portraits of her suggested that she had fair skin and European features. Others showed her having slightly darker skin and African features. She was often called ugly and plain. Well, that's not nice. In A Tale of Two Cities, referring to George and Charlotte, Charles Dickens wrote, There was a king with a large jaw and a queen with a plain, and a queen with a plain face on the throne of England. Her physician reportedly described her as a small, small and crooked with a true mulatto face. Wow, that's, that's always great. It's always nice to, to hear when history describes uh, black features. Uh, Sir Walter Scott wrote that she was ill-colored. A prime minister once said that her nose was too wide and her lips were too thick. Um, the show reconstructs the vague reports of her appearance into Charlotte experiencing both racism and ties of kinship with other black people. King George's III's mother, uh, Princess Augustina, complains about Charlotte's skin being very brown, and a minister meekly replies, I told you she had more uh, more blood. So uh, if you think of the Moors in Shakespeare's tale of, um, oh my goodness, uh, Othello. Othello was a Moor, basically. So her brother admits that no one who looked like them had ever married into a British royal family, even though Charlotte and George in real life were related. That's disgusting. Um, I always forget how much um, royal royalty back in that time period wanted to keep the bloodlines pure, and that meant that you'd marry, you know, a second or third cousin. I mean, as long as they had only ten toes, I guess they were good. Uh, wedding guests murmur in shock at Charlotte's well encrusted uh, encrusted afro and Lady Danbury has a wide look of joy upon seeing the new queen is on our side even though Queen Charlotte's contemporaries made it clear that they thought her face didn't meet their beauty standards there are almost no records of anyone explicitly saying that Charlotte, born into the royal family of the North German Dutch I'm not even going to try to pronounce that last name had black parents, black siblings, black cousins, or black ancestors on either side. In 1997, historian Mario de Valdez, Y. Cocom, claimed his research showed she was descendants from the illegitimate son of King Alfonso of Portugal and his Moorish mistress. So maybe there might be a bit of a claim that there was, you know, some, what do they call it, some coffee in the cream there, as it were. But, but while both... Uh, Mad Gandria and Queen Charlotte are called, were called Moors, the word had a vast range of meaning. Originally, it meant the Muslim inhabitants of Megrahab, uh, the Iberian Peninsula, Sicily, Sicily, and Malta during the Middle Ages, but it also meant someone with darker skin, sometimes referring to people who would be considered black today, and sometimes referring to people who would be considered European, Middle Eastern, South Asian, or Latinx today. Stephen um, Pincus, historian of the global British Empire and professor of history at the University of Chicago, tells Vox that the term more as a uh, static racial or ethnic category is subject to much dispute, adding that um, Sephardic Jews were sometimes called Moors. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
Even though the real Charlotte was at best ludicrously removed from blackness, Queen Charlotte leans heavily into representational politics while still making egregious errors of substance. It's especially hard to feel good about shallow representation when we spend three episodes watching Lady Danbury be violated by the husband she was forced to marry as a child, sometimes multiple times in a single episode. This means that the only characters to have been violated in Netflix Bridgerton universe are both black. For some black women, this all makes the series feel emotionally manipulative. Shonda Rhimes is probably playing very heavily into the correlation between what's currently happening with Harry and Meghan. Meghan Markle, and what she would like us to envision was happening back then, even though it's not historical, says April Morris, editor-in-chief of Off Color Magazine. What it means and meant to force a narrative of blackness onto Queen Charlotte. So if Charlotte most likely wasn't black, why did the theory become so popular? The rapid expansion of the slave trade in the late 17th century through to the end of the 18th century plays a role. Pincus says of this time period, slavery became a much more prominent feature of the British Empire. It, also it was also increasingly the source of unbelievably accumulation of wealth. Slavery is notably absent from the world of Bridgerton, although vague mentions of the colonies are peppered in so quickly that you'd likely miss it. In the Bridgerton universe, none of the black people are concerned about human rights or civil rights. Rather, they want to host balls and be invited to hunts. They want to marry white people without sassy comments from the Tons and be given noble titles and more land. They don't even want money. They just want the opportunity to be treated, to be treated like, the, um, like the moneyed people they already are. For Morris, these questions of wealth and assimilation are parts of parallels that Shonda Rhimes is trying to draw for the black upper middle class of today. Pincus, although he says he enjoys the show as a relaxing watch, points out that it clearly is a show which is targeted to the wealthy. This is perhaps the most salient and cohesive political framework undergirding the Bridgerton universe, the love of money. And the love of money is also what defined the British Empire's relationship to black people. By the time Queen Charlotte became consort, the British Empire was struggling with slave revolts in all of its colonies and economic concerns, which outweighed the moral arguments pushed more people to become interested in ending the slave trade. <clears throat> the heightened discussion of slavery, slave rebellions, and abolition-fueled debate about Queen Charlotte. In the time period in which she was queen, there was an increasing concern regarding abolitionists. Abolitionists, um, Harris explains. And one of her portrait painters, Alan Ramsey, was a noted abolitionist who may well have been interested in exploring these ideas that she had African ancestry within the context of discussing and debating slavery. When Lady Danbury finally wins her battle to host the ball of the season, spoiler alert, it takes a while for the crowd to thaw, with white people on one side and black members on the other. Then after seeing Charlotte and George dance, more and more interracial dance, uh, dancing pairs join the floor, to the tune of Alicia Keys' If I Ain't Got You on the violin. After the ball, George and Charlotte are in her bedroom, and George declares in wonder, with one evening, one party, we have created more change, stepped forward more than Britain has in the last century. Adding that with Charlotte by his side, he could do anything. And of course, in the original Bridgerton show, interracial marriages are now so commonplace due to George and Charlotte's example that no one even considers race or ethnicity something worth mentioning. 
Again, even though the series is obviously ahistorical, these messages we receive matter. They stick with us. Viewers may logically know that this scenario didn't occur, but it functions as a nod towards an incredibly deep-seated belief, one that says Britain and King George ended slavery out of the moral concerns and ultralism. Ultralism. When really, it was the resistance of slaves and colonized people that led to abolition and the withdrawal of British troops from the colonies. According to uh, Gerald Horn, professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston, slave rebellions were rising during the Georgian and Regency eras, uh, Georgian, sorry, which had tremendous impact on Britain finally ending slavery in 1834. The Haitian Revolution was divisive in abolitionist fortune, uh, fortunes. London felt they could neither move to... Uh, circumscribe the slave trade in 1807, three years after Haiti's triumph, or run the risk of having enslavers liquidated physically. Wisely, they sought the option of deliminating uh, the slave trade, then abolishing it by the 1830s. This is a rich and complicated history. Reducing it to interracial love saved the world, even for a romance novel, seems cheap and intellectually bankrupt. It's necessary to point out that Julia Quinn's Bridgerton novel, save the one she question questionably decided to write about Queen Charlotte post-Netflix series, features white people only. During a panel, <clears throat> Quinn once said, she only wanted to write happy stories and choose not to have black characters because their unhappy stories weren't the kind she wanted to tell. There you go. Given that she and other writers on the show evidently couldn't tell Lady Danbury's story without a shocking amount of marital uh, rape, proves perhaps she should have steered clear. Okay. To not want to write about racism is not a morally depraved stance or even an illogical one. To not write about people with identities you can't relate to is perhaps a wise choice. But to refuse to write black, black characters for most of your career because you can't imagine them happy and then rake in momentous amounts of money by emotionally manipulating black people with shallow representation years later does feel morally bankrupt. If Netflix and Shondaland want to portray black people being happy during the Regency period, uh, Beverly Jenkins is just one example of an author of steamy loving black romances set in the 17th and 20th century. Why do studios not invest in developing her stories to the screen? The answer is clear. If, dep if depressing Queen Charlotte was never about representation for black people or telling black stories, it was about money and about uh, rectifying and re-intertwining empire and wealth and placating black people by claiming that we too can have a place among the most powerful to recast a queen who, whether she was sympathetic towards enslaved people or not, presided over a vast empire and lived a life built on the, on the genocidal labor as a black woman fighting for her people, is a coherent and abhorrent neoliberal political statement. It seeks, above all, to protect the institution. So, it's, uh... I mean, that was a doozy, wasn't it? Um, if we're going to be honest... One of the things that has happened over the last number of years when it comes to streaming services, when it comes to cable, when it comes to all of these sort of new forms and new, new platforms that are out right now that we can use to watch our TV shows and our series and, you know, and things of that nature is that 
there's more storytellers out there and writers and showrunners and producers and directors than there ever have been before. And there's more ways that we can get our visions out there to millions upon millions of people. And so the, the writer of this, this article is right that yes, you know, um, there are going to be a lot of people. Uh, this was written by Nyla Burton. Again, on May the 5th, 2023, by uh, Vox.com. And so, the writer of this is right. You know, this is not a... This is not a historical fact. Britain did not um, integrate um, black people into their... Into their... Into society. They continued to use them as beasts of burden and slaves for... Almost another hundred years that this thing is set in. And it is, it is apparent that if we don't have honest, true historical fact taught into, into schools, that shows like this can take over, if you would. Uh, recently, the Anti-Defamation League, which covers a lot of stuff out there when it comes to um, hatred against Jewish people, hatred against um, hate crimes in particular, has stated that they're starting to see a rise in the denial of the Holocaust. Now, you can imagine if there was a show that showcased that, oh, it wasn't six million Jews, it was only two, right? Or, you know, it wasn't that bad and the concentration camps weren't that horrible or if they tried to minimize it or make it a little bit less than, less than the horror that it was, people would be pissed. And with much, with much, much reason, because it was just one of the most horrific periods in human history. I mean, there's so many. I mean, we the things we do to each other as human beings is just disgusting and gross. And unfortunately, we do them. And it would be very horrible to see somebody try to do that to the Holocaust or to the Trail of Tears with our Aboriginal First Nations people here in Canada or to the Japanese internment camps that were literally in America during Pearl Harbor. When just looking Asian was enough to get your, your property and your home and your business taken and stripped away from you and have yourself separated from your family and your loved ones. And you didn't know if you were ever going to get a fair day in court or if you're just going to be locked away forever. So, So there's a history of, in very, very modern day times of us doing horrible things to each other. And I do get what the writers of Bridgerton are trying to do, right? They're trying to say, hey, let's look at the world. We all know this is not historical, but let's say what would have happened if, like a what if, alternate timeline, alternate reality. What would have happened if, you know, America didn't lock up Japanese people in these internment camps. What would have happened if somebody had taken out Hitler before Mein Kampf and before he put out his quote unquote, um, solution for the Jews or what would have happened if the, the, the war in Rwanda didn't take place or, you know, Vietnam and all that kind of stuff. And I think these are stories that, that are rich and full of so much potential to be told. Because I, for one, I've, I, I mean, I don't need to see another 12 Years a Slave and another Roots film and another Selma and another... It, at some point in time, you get it, right? 
And it does need to be retold every generation so we don't forget the potency of what happened. It's, and I, I've heard a lot of people say, well, when we, when we, when we say these things, such as uh, we talk about racism, we talk about Jim Crow, we talk about apartheid, we talk about the Indian Act, we talk about all these draconian laws that were meant to hold people back and to stop them from moving forward. The reason we need to keep telling them every generation is if they get forgotten, it can easily be replicated and done again. We're starting to see it right now in America, where there is this huge, immense cry against LGBTQ plus uh, two-spirited people. It's the satanic panic all, all over again from the 80s. It's the Red Scare from the 50s and the 60s where people were accused of being communists and blackballed from Hollywood. It's the, again, the satanic panic where everything that seemed a little bit alternate lifestyle was deemed to be demonic and people were being groomed to hurt children. And many a good businesses and people did time in prison for stuff that they didn't do. And prior to that, you had the witch hunts in Selma, you know, in New England, just because... God forbid, uppity women didn't want to have kids and maybe wanted to own a business. And we couldn't have that because, God forbid, we're starting a nation. And, you know, and if you have women that don't want to have children, it's kind of hard to build a nation. So they had to be routed out. And so you, you see it just repeat itself over and over. I, I read this once where it said history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. It often goes in this sort of centrifugal force of something that just happens over and over again. And if we're not paying attention and if we're not actually looking, it, it, we can get hit with it again, you know? So the fact of the matter is, is that to see something and to watch something and to think what would have happened had Haiti, you know, fought off the French before they even made landfall, what could have happened? Could we have seen a nation, various nations like the Congo and Rwanda and, and um, in South Africa, like, look like a Wakanda. If you think about it, the Black Panther is, is similar to that in that it showcases what Africa might have been like in various African nations. I'm sorry, Africa, Afri um, countries within the continent of Africa would have been like had they not been touched by the hand of colonialism, European involvement, European meddling and influencing in their countries, and hadn't been targeted just for their resources. Um if you had seen Black Panther 2, Wakanda Forever, you would have seen there was a bit of a, uh, a to-do about how they portrayed France in that France was trying to um, covertly and inadvert, you know, just undercover try to take their vibranium. And it is well known in what France did to Haiti in the 17 and 1800s and how Haiti led one of the, the, one of the few successful revolts against France and has been paying for that ever since. If you study the history of what France actually did to Haiti and the reparations that Haiti had to pay literally for freeing themselves from the yoke of oppression is truly one of the, 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 I, you can't almost believe it's hard to believe it if you read it, but if you Google it and check it out, it's, it's insane what the Haitian people had to do and I think just recently stopped paying the money back to France. We're talking billions of dollars. If that money had been put into the Haitian economy, you probably would have seen one of the, the richest countries on earth versus one of the poor, if not the poorest in the Western Hemisphere. It's, it's just, 
it's tragic. It's tragic what's been done to that country. And, and so to hear stories of, hey, maybe what would have happened had not this evil of slavery touched, you know, this country. And so those are stories I feel that are, that are, that need to be told. Now, it doesn't mean that we replace what has happened. It doesn't mean that we whitewash over it and we make it into something we want. Obviously, anybody who's watching this show realizes that this is fantasy to begin with, uh, back to Bridgerton. And that if you're taking your historical lessons from Roots, from Django Unchained, right? From, um, The Last Samurai, right? They, <laughs> That that's not that's not a good thing. This is why we need proper education to show people what actually happened. Because as the writer states, if we're not learning the truth of what happened to these various um, cultures, we could buy into what Bridgerton is trying to spit sell sell you. And so, the idea that a lot of our history, which is very uncomfortable. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to share it. We get people believing that the Holocaust didn't happen, that it wasn't that bad, that Vietnam was just a, um, you know, was 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 a movie by Oliver Stone or something, you know, and that what the the travesties of what took place during the transatlantic slave trade, what happened between Jap the Japanese and Chinese. Um, with their wars and and what's going on right now between Taiwan and China and, and and Russia and Ukraine, if we don't obviously study the facts, we could buy into all sorts of crazy rhetoric. So, I feel I feel like on on one hand, kind of like you know to kind of wrap this thing up. I feel on one hand, you do want to be responsible when you're talking about events that took place many years ago. I don't think anybody, excuse me, I don't think anybody wants to see a world in which we whitewash, sanitize historical fact to create historical fiction so we can feel better about the past. It's an insult to the people that went through the horrors of what they went through. And it's also, it's also a slap in the face to the folks who fought, died, bled, lost jobs, lost families, lost loved ones, lost their lives in order for people to be able to go to school and to read and to marry who they want and to live in a community that they, they want. And the civil rights movement and the movement against, you know, that the Latino and Spanish people fought for in, in America, as well as indigenous and Asian and, you know, and the women's movement, like when we, when we water them down and we turn them into, you know, cannon fodder for our entertainment it does cheapen it. And so obviously we got to have a place for the honest, real discussion of what happened, regardless of how we feel about it and have a place for fantasy. I want to end with, um, this, it's a, it's a story I wrote, not a story, but more of a piece that I wrote for my blog, uh, for the marketplace of ideas podcast. Uh, well, it's a blog. I'm sorry. The marketplace of ideas blog last year, and I got to revise it and, you know, I noticed there's a few mistakes, but basically I was talking about John A. Macdonald, the father of Confederacy in Canada. He is widely recognized and seen as the father of Canada, the one who helped to create Canada, the one who helped to stop the encroachment of America 
into, further into Canada. He also, I believe, brought along Winnipeg and Vancouver into the Confederacy as well because they were kind of hesitant to join. He was able to solidify a country and the Charter of Rights and I don't know if he brought the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I'll have to, I'll have to check that uh, just to be sure. But he is well known as the, the father of the Confederacy. And he's also the father of the residential school system. He was instrumental in putting together a school system that would take, as he put it in his words, take the red man off of and the savage and make them unsavage and make them civilized, have them think as the white man. Take away the children. Punish them by, by pain of discipline and bruised knuckles that they couldn't speak their language, they could not um, eat their food, they could not be who they were. And they created this system to assimilate them. And some of the horrors that took place in these systems are now finally being recognized for the terror that it was. But here's the thing. On Canada Day, in, in my country, every day, I'm not every day, but every year, they celebrate Canada Day. 150 plus years of, of, a, of a very young country that is entered onto the world stage, one of the G7 countries, a developed country, with immense amount of broken treaties that were made between people from Britain here in Canada. A country that was put together such a horrific form of segregation in the Indian Act that the South Africans looked at that and said, "Hey, let's borrow that for some of the Negroes we got. Uh, we're having problems with here in Africa, in, in in South Africa." The Indian Act didn't allow Aboriginal uh, people to vote, to own land, to own businesses to vote, to take part in any part of civil discord. It's like, just shoved them off to the corners in, in you know, in various, uh, you know, um, reservations. And let them die off the vine. And all the immense wealth and trillions of dollars in agriculture and forestation and, and natural resources, you know, was pillaged to the, uh, to the Europeans that came here. And, and I know a lot of people would argue and say, well, you know, First Nations people, they had wars within their own tribes, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like Pocahontas, and everybody was peaceful, and then the evil white man came, that's not the case, and, and whatnot. And that, that would be true, but what John A. MacDonald did was, 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 was insane. It was horrible. It was awful. It was re reprehensible even by the standards back then of discrimination, was still horrific to, to have children face starvation. Yet, every Canada Day, we celebrate the fact that we have a country because of him. And so that duality of somebody who did this immensely difficult and incredible thing in helping to form a nation with his cabinet, also on the same hand, allowed aboriginal babies to die tore apart families and 
along with the Catholic Church, oversaw some of the worst abuses that have ever been recorded when it comes to, um, and this happened in the school system, and this happened also in the United States as well, in Australia, with their indigenous uh, people and their population. And so we can't, we can't hide away from, from history because what happens is when we get retellings and reimaginings and alternate universe tellings of these stories, if we don't have the anchor of the truth, well, this, you know, sort of prim and pop, proper, you know, um, look at it seems a lot more attractive. I mean, think about it. If you're a young person... In today's world, are you going to want to identify with the horrors of chattel slavery and Jim Crow and and all of these other stories? Or are you going to say, hey, this Bridgerton thing looks pretty cool. And that happened a long time ago. Let's, I like this. I like this version of it. So I think there's a space. There has to be. Well, not there, there, you hope. But there has to be space for the truth. And then... Elseworld stories and alternate universe stories, I think, can still exist as long as we understand that it isn't the truth, but this is fantasy, this is fiction, this is something that's being told, and it, it, it can be a little bit problematic, but I think there has to be a space for it, because if your whole identity is based upon your pain and your suffering, That's a problem. And so, some of these stories, I think, are, can be a good thing. You know, before we end up, we wrap it up here. And I think, the reason I say it can be a good thing is because people need to see what could be possible. And, and don't get me wrong, there are, there are real life stories of passion, of desire, of love, of connection within all, all races and, and people groups that took place under some of probably the most heinous of circumstances through war and starvation and, and economic and political upheaval. But I, I also think that it's, there's no harm in showcasing stories that show people in a different light, even if it's not historically factual. As long as you put a disclaimer and state that, hey, this is a story. This is, not, this is not something that actually happened. Queen Charlotte wasn't, you know, um, brought into King George III's um, life to be his wife because of an experiment. That just did not happen. And I think once we were able to make sure that that kind of thing is, is, you know, there's a little asterisk there that says, hey, this isn't historical, this didn't really happen, this is fantasy, I think we'll be okay. But um, like I was saying before, you know, hopefully didn't prattle on too long, but um, like I was saying, hopefully, hopefully this is something that really woke you up a little bit, you know, helped you to... I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe you'll check out the Bridgerton series on Netflix and see what you think. But uh, like I was saying before, you can find the Marketplace of Ideas podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes. We are there rocking and rolling. 
And um, yeah, look for more episodes coming up. But until next time, take care, be good to one another out there, and have a better day. Peace.